Welcome to Improbable Walks, a podcast that brings you to the streets of Paris wherever you are. My name is Lisa Passold, and I'm a writer and traveler who loves to walk in the city of light. Every episode, we step into history by strolling down a different block of the city, exploring buildings and people of the past and of the present. Let's step into history together. Today, we're exploring a bridge and an intersection that starts at the Pont de l'Alma. We're looking west towards the Eiffel Tower. This bridge is modern, an impressive swoosh across the Seine. This early 1970s construction is actually a rebuild of the original 19th century Pont de l'Alma. The name Alma comes from an 1854 battle in Crimea between the French and the Russians. The Pont de l'Alma is famous for its soldier sculpture, the Zouave. There were originally four soldiers on the Pont de l'Alma, but since the rebuild, this is the only one that was reinstalled. Traditionally, floods in the Seine are popularly measured against the Zouave's body. In 1910, the flood was up past his shoulders. The problem with comparing floods today with that old flood is that when the bridge was rebuilt in the 70s, the soldier was positioned slightly lower on the foot of the bridge, so he's not an entirely accurate flood marker. I love this bridge because I've walked across it countless times, going to the American library that's on the left bank in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. The American library in Paris was founded in 1920 with this beautiful motto, Atrum post bellum ex libris lux, after the darkness of war, the light of books. The American Library in Paris began as a collection of books and periodicals donated to United States Armed Forces personnel serving the Allies in World War I. It's now the largest English-language lending library in continental Europe, and countless students and writers have spent time there. As we stand on the Bridge of Alma, I like to think of Irish novelist James Joyce, who often crossed this bridge in the 1920s. Joyce was a committed walker covering miles across the city of Paris. Because of his failing eyesight, he always walked with a companion, a friend, or a secretary. In fact, Irish playwright Samuel Beckett worked as Joyce's secretary for a little while. Joyce walked the Champs-Élysées often, eating at Fouquet's. Well, mostly Joyce drank Alsatian wine while his family ate. James Joyce is forever associated with Sylvia Beach, founder of Shakespeare and Company Books, because Sylvia Beach published Joyce's great novel Ulysses in 1922. But there's a lovely description by Richard Eder, who was the chief of the New York Times Paris Bureau, describing Joyce on this bridge. Eder writes... From the Pont d'Alma, Joyce used to stand with his secretary, Paul Leon. The Seine was as powerful to him and as barely visible as time passing. Standing on the Pont de l'Alma today, we have a great view of the Eiffel Tower, and we can also admire the new Russian Orthodox Holy Trinity Cathedral, which opened in 2016. 
This cathedral is part of Putin's campaign to portray Russia as a strong religious country. The domes are rather beautiful, though the construction was marred by corruption and the usual political infighting. And it's also a pretty heavy-handed reminder of Mother Russia, ironically positioned here at the left bank foot of the Alma Bridge, considering the Russians lost the Battle of Alma. However, symbols of Russian religious power in Paris aren't new. Until 2016, the most important Russian Orthodox church was slightly to the north of us. Cubist painter Pablo Picasso was married in that church in 1918. That was his first marriage to Olga, the ballerina he met while working on sets and costumes for the Ballet Russe. The 1918 wedding of Picasso and Olga was the art event of the summer with poets Jean Cocteau, Max Jacob, and Apollinaire all acting as Picasso's groomsmen. Apollinaire, one of Picasso's best friends, tragically died a few months later. From the bridge, if you look upriver towards Notre Dame, you'll notice the bateau mouche moored here, waiting for tourists to cruise up and down the river. You might hear some of their announcements as they float by, and at night the lights are blindingly impressive. The poet Apollinaire lived near here in the early years of the 20th century. Inveterate walker, best friends of Picasso, constantly curious, Apollinaire coined the term Cubism and wrote some of the most radically interesting poetry of the era. Apollinaire also worked as a journalist, and he covered the Great Flood of 1910. He, in fact, described this very corner where the bridge meets the right bank, and he wrote... On Avenue Montagne, there are organized pleasure boats. For two cents, you float by the most extreme mansions, and photographers take your flooded portrait for 30 centimes. Even now, more than a century later, the flood of 1910 is the worst the city has ever seen. The flood affected 150,000 Parisians, as well as 200,000 living in the immediate city suburbs. However, the streets and the bridge all eventually dried out. So now that we're on the right bank, let's head over towards the Avenue Montagne that Apollinaire described. But first, we have to get across the incredibly busy intersection of the Place de l'Alma. Part of this place was recently renamed in honor of Princess Diana. As you step onto the right bank from the bridge to the west of the place, you'll see a sculpture slightly larger than a car, gleaming with gold leaf. This flame of liberty is a life-size copy of the Statue of Liberty's torch, installed here in 1989. The flame was originally not at all to do with Diana, Princess of Wales, but when the princess died in a nearby highway tunnel in 1997, the flame became an unofficial memorial to her short, glamorous life. Now, if we cross right around the Place de l'Anma, avoiding the traffic, we'll pass a couple of cafes, a couple of broad boulevards, and the beginning of wide, impressive Avenue Montagne. The street is important enough to have separate lanes for parking, nicely sheltered with meridian rows of trees. This avenue processes up from here to end at the Champs-Élysées a few blocks away. 
Today, this area is synonymous with haute couture houses and high-end design, a trend which began with Christian Dior when he set up shop on this avenue in 1946. But originally, the Avenue Montagne was a simple country street out on the edges beyond city limits. The avenue was formally gentrified in 1855 with the Exposition Universelle. Glamorous houses became popular here, and one of Emperor Napoleon III's mistresses, the eccentric Comtesse de Castiglione, lived here in a mansion that's since been demolished. But Avenue Montagne continued to attract celebrities throughout the 20th century. In fact, the great star Marlena Dietrich lived in an apartment here for the last decade of her life at number 12 Avenue Montagne on the fourth floor. We're going to stop in front of number 15 Avenue Montagne at the amazingly beautiful Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. This is a classic Art Deco building, which you might imagine more easily in New York, but here it is, clean Parisian stone with gold accents on the doors and square windows, an elegant curve on the corner, and six stories above the entrance, there's an exuberant sculpted frieze in a band across the top of the building. It really feels as if it sailed up from the Seine and landed here. Now, you may wonder, since we're standing on the Avenue Montagne near the river, why this theater is called the Champs-Élysées, considering we're not on the famous boulevard. But that's a story. You see, in 1906, empresario Gabriel Astruc decided to build a music theater hall. He signed a deal with Paris City Hall to build on the former circus site on the Champs-Élysées. But in 1909, when his plans were already underway, the city reneged on the deal. Why? Pure anti-Semitism, Astruc was Jewish. In 1909, the extreme right wing was gaining ground in Paris and successfully pressured City Hall to ditch their Jewish contacts. Astruc was probably furious, but in public, he merely shrugged, kept his private investors, and bought his own damn land over here on the Avenue Montagne, near the Place de l'Alma. He hired architectural wunderkind Auguste Perret to design this beautiful Art Deco theater, which is gorgeous inside and out and has great acoustics. The door finally opened in 1913. This was a fascinating era for performance, just as Cubist painters were rebelling against visual constraints, dancers, musicians, and architects were also rebelling. Remember that Picasso painted the Demoiselle d'Avignon in 1907, the famous launch of Cubism. In 1909, famous impresario Diaghilev presented his very first Saison Russe of ballet and opera in Paris. Diaghilev soon lured Nijinsky from St. Petersburg to join the Ballet Russe, and in 1913, for his opening season, Astruc booked the premiere of the new Ballet Russe show here at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées. This was the Rite of Spring, composed by Stravinsky, choreographed by Nijinsky, opening here. The performance was rebellious in every way, and Paris was thrilled to go. 
There's a wonderful story that when Diaghilev first first listened to Stravinsky playing through the Rite of Spring with its dissonant, pulsating chords on a piano, poor Diaghilev said, will it last a very long time this way? And Stravinsky replied, to the end, my dear, to the end. Well, it was sort of an end for theater owner Astruc. At the right of spring premiere, tuxedo-clad gents in the audience shoved and shouted until the music was drowned out and Nijinsky ended up having to shout the beat timing from the wings so the dancers could keep keep step with the choreography. Afterwards, the sets and costumes were impounded for unpaid bills and theater owner Astruc was thrown out of his own theater. Yet Astruc said, I do not regret my folly, for from my ruin sprang the rite of spring. Astruc went on to manage other theaters. He knew everyone. He even proofread Marcel Proust's first edition of Du Côté de Chez Swann. But Astruc was no longer in charge of the theater by 1925, which is when Paris began its long love affair with Josephine Baker, right here in this theater. As some of you might already know, Josephine Baker really became a star in Paris, but she was born in 1906 in St. Louis into the heart of racially divided Great Migration. She started dancing professionally very young, and her talent led her to New York City, which is where she became part of the critically acclaimed dance show, The Revue Negre. In 1925, when the show was getting ready to travel to Europe, the lead dancer didn't want to leave New York. So 18-year-old Baker was pulled up from the basic dance troupe to replace the star. Thirteen musicians traveled with the dancer across the Atlantic, including the amazing Sidney Bechet, the groundbreaking clarinet player who, along with Louis Armstrong, helped popularize jazz. This was a team of extraordinary quality heading to Paris to open the show here at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées on the Avenue Montaigne. Later, reflecting on an incredible life, Baker said, I can only recall one single day of fear in my entire life, one day which lasted only one hour, maybe one minute, when fear grasped, grasped my brain, my heart, my guts with such force that everything seemed to come apart. It was September 15th, 1925. That was the day the boat sailed from New York to take the team for the Revue Negre over to France. Josephine Baker is now remembered for her famous banana dance for that show, but it was only added to the show in 1927. In 1925, the closing number was a danse sauvage, riffing on all the worst assumptions Europeans could possibly make about African-American culture. And it was added to the program just for the opening in France, probably to make sure they had a properly scandalized audience because the producers of the Revue Negre knew that Parisians love to be scandalized. Now, the racist tropes are particularly obvious today if you look at the posters for the show. And yet those posters were designed by Frenchman Paul Collin, who was madly inspired by Josephine Baker, partly because they had immediately tumbled into an affair. And they remained friends long afterwards. Though the review played up to certain racist expectations for the audience, the French also greeted Baker with rave reviews, which gave her a new star power and a great sense of freedom. 
Let me quote the great black American writer Richard Wright, who moved to France after World War II. He said, The French people themselves have no illusions. Life is accepted for what it is, the grim along with the beautiful. I utterly agree with that description of the French. But Richard Wright also claimed that France had no race tension or conflict, which is blatantly untrue. However, for Wright, and possibly for Josephine Baker also, France represented a new kind of freedom where you could carve out a life for yourself without the chains of American racism holding her back. Josephine Baker performed across the country to sold-out theaters, her songs became part of the vocabulary of France, and her life was as complicated as any celebrity today. She married four times, had innumerable affairs, including flings with mystery novelist Georges Simenon and with my favorite French writer Colette. Baker also tried to build herself a family by adopting a dozen children, her famous rainbow tribe, and she honestly wins no prizes for either sensible parenting or for financial management. However, what some of you might not know is that during World War II, Josephine Baker worked undercover for the resistance. Throughout the occupation, she kept performing across Europe, donating proceeds from her French performances to refugees. She traveled to North Africa, smuggling documents and information for the Allies. After the war, France awarded her the Légion d'honneur and the Croix de Guerre for her espionage work. Baker's political commitment didn't end with the war. In 1963, she was invited to speak at the March on Washington, the only woman speaking alongside the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Baker wore her French war uniform covered in medals. And she said, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. In 1975, when Josephine Baker died in Paris in the middle of one of the most successful returns to stage, admittedly yet another return, her funeral was held at the prestigious Madeleine Church, and she was given a prestigious 21-gun salute by the French government. But I like to imagine her walking through the Place de l'Alma to get a glimpse of the Eiffel Tower back in 1925, when maybe she could feel her star rising. If you enjoyed this improbable walk, please subscribe to the podcast. For details about today's walk, please visit my website, lisapassold.com. Thank you for listening and for stepping into history with me. Until the next time, we go strolling through Paris together.